All right, folks, uh, our long national nightmare is over. Uh, we we can finally put to bed uh, the question of uh, that has been on all of our minds, which is when would we see Melania Trump once again? Uh, it has been seven months <laughs> since we have last seen her, and she attended a Halloween event at Mar-a-Lago with the former president, Donald Trump, uh, just the other night. There are are plenty of pictures of them out in public together. Uh, They entered the party uh, to Metallica's Enter Sandman. (laughs) She did not not have a costume, uh, but she opted for uh, a long sleeve knee length black dress with a diamond choker and a blue clutch. So Melania, she was going her costume. She was going as a happily married woman. That was her, that was her costume. <laughs> uh, in in this case, it was uh, it was quite effective. So, hey, look, you know, I mean, we 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 all see the lefties on on Twitter who try to make a big stink about this. Um, but you know, I I think that I certainly understand why this is nothing that Melania ever signed up for. Uh, despite the fact that I still maintain that uh, my favorite conspiracy theory is uh i don't really believe but i just i think it's hilarious if you think about it is that she's actually q <laughs> so, you're, you're just asking questions i'm just asking you're just questions, asking questions. Just out here asking questions that's like that's like the show that went on for one season too long that's the twist that you would have in season eight <laughs> it was her all along oh! <laughs> so so uh uh yes some uh somehow uh the emperor has returned (laughs) so anyway the the (laughs) thing the thing that i think is just interesting about this is going to be you know we're used to seeing or we got used to seeing trump's family with him at all these events you know when he was president and uh and during his campaign and everything else like that and now i think that you uh you, you still have some of that but it's not to the same degree uh, in part because, you know, obviously the the sons are essentially absent from from media ever since he he announced. Um, they complain about it, you know, quite a bit. But they, you know, beforehand they were on, uh, you know, on on air all the time, everywhere. And uh, you know, I think that the other thing is that, you know, really Ivanka and Jared, with a few exceptions, Jared was out there uh, doing a couple of interviews this past week for some reason. Um, they've really you know avoided uh, this, and it's kind of like a, a period in their life that that ended ended messily ended badly and that they don't really seem to want a part of uh, i don't know if you think of that, of that as having any particular effect but it is going to be different i think this time around assuming that he is the nominee uh than we experienced before uh and i don't know if you have thoughts on the ramifications of that well i would just say on melania herself that um you know the the cynical view i i, I did some quick googling around when i saw that piece and the cynical view would be you know, her son is about to turn 18. If he's not 18 already, he's right around that age. And the, the conspirator, you know, there's been plenty of, you know, speculation that she's just waiting to pull the trigger on a divorce or something like that. And that would certainly be a, a trigger is that, you know, Baron goes off to college or, or wherever, wherever he's going to go off to. Um, but I will say, you know, from my point of view, as someone who is, an uh, you know, is a, 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 you know, listeners will know is, is not a fan of of Trump, I, I I think Melania has conducted herself generally with a lot of class, restraint, grace, all of those things. I mean, I don't I don't gush over her Christmas decorations the way that some 
mm-hmm. um, you know, people do. But but I, I actually think, you know, she's been put in a very difficult position, like you said, not something she signed up for. Besides the one whatever weird jacket she wore with the I don't care written on it or whatever that was, um, she hasn't really lashed out in any public way. People have said very mean things about her, you know, and much more to the point, very mean things about her minor child. Um and, you know, that it, we, it's easy for us to forget, you know, that that public figures are also human beings. You know, in my um, in my uh, day job, I, I interact with a lot of people who are facing public criticism and you see the impact that it has on their family. I know, Ben, obviously your family, you've seen the, the, the family side of, of uh, public figures and criticism of public figures yourself. It's easy to forget that, you know, these are real people with real feelings. And I think she's conducted herself pretty well. And it's, you know, frankly, it's totally up to her if she, how, how much she wants to be a part of uh, Trump's public face. And, and more to the point, like, you know, it doesn't seem like it's going to matter, just like nothing else really matters in terms of his numbers. I mean, whether she's sure. at his side at every rally or not, it doesn't seem like it's in any position to hurt him. Right now, Ivanka Trump is uh, fighting legally to try to stay out of this case in New York. Don Jr. and Eric Trump have both had to testify and both of them basically said we didn't have anything to do with any of this and it seems clear that you know whether you believe them and you know entirely or not it does really seem like it's Letitia James and and everyone else involved in this who's just sort of going to the nth degree trying to just get all the Trumps in the room to make hay uh and uh and so it's harder and harder to take that kind of thing seriously uh John do you think it has any ramifications on the on the campaign trail no, I mean, it's, you know, I guess it's going to be pretty kind of historically unusual, um, you know, to not have a to not have a spouse out there. But I, I agree with Dan. I mean, I think it's kind of priced in to, to the Trump experience at this point. I mean, I always I mean, I think the most sort of pure example of what I mean by this is when, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger ran in the California recall election. I guess that's almost like, what, 20 years ago now. Um, and, you know, in like the, you know, the last like week or two. Uh, there was the, you know, Arnold, you know, was groping women kind of thing. And like literally red and blue California both kind of shrugged their shoulders and was like, yeah, like we kind of probably expected that from a guy that was like a roided out, you know, Hollywood guy during that era. Like people, you know, so I think I think for Trump, just sort of whatever the dynamics are with his family, I think, you know, I, I think his core supporters, like they just don't care. It's, it's yeah. you know, it's all about Trump and um and particularly, you know, and I think we've obviously discussed this at length. I mean, there's you know, some interesting dynamics within, you know, the Biden plan as, as well. So I, I just don't I don't I don't think it's a, a plus yeah. or a minus. And I, I think Dan's point is really well made that, you know, you, you do kind of get the sense that, you know, Melania never really signed up for this. Um, and, you know, I, I thought did I agree. I think, you know, carried herself you know with a, with a lot of grace. And, you know, if you whether she had been married to a Democratic politician, you know, everyone had been talking about like, oh, my God, this is. You're the first immigrant first lady since you know oh yeah Quincy Adams wife and if she, you know, if she was how- if, if she was married to Gavin Newsom she would be on the cover of every single magazine <laughs> yeah so um so I I want to uh you know obviously this is Thunderdome and so we talk about these things from the perspective of of or we try to talk about them from the perspective of how things are going to matter in the 2024 election and here we are finally in November a year out from that election uh, and there's certain dynamics that I think we should kind of take a step back uh, and just assess as being built in uh, to the Thunderdome uh, experience at this point, you know. And and so let's let's take let's assess sort of where things stand. Uh, number one, it seems clear that there's only two candidates on the Republican side who have any hope whatsoever of challenging uh, Donald Trump. 
uh, and their hopes of challenging him uh, are significantly diminished compared to what was once thought a year ago. Uh, I think everybody would have thought that Ron DeSantis would be doing a hell of a lot better than he is. Uh, and I think that they also thought that there would probably be, a, you know, a third candidate who would emerge uh, and, you know, might be really having success in this race. I personally wonder, uh, particularly given the dynamics of the current priority set of issues, if Mike Pompeo regrets not running, uh, because I think that this is, you know, is a moment where Nikki Haley almost by default has seized the foreign policy language uh, in a way that she can uh, and also appeal to. Uh, that kind of, uh, you know, pe people who want to really turn over a leaf away from Trumpism and populism. Uh, and I think that that's something that, you know, was always going to be there. Um, number two, uh, Trump continues his dominance, uh, but his dominance is, you know, perhaps not as, at least to me, is not as impressive as uh, I kind of thought it would be. I, I, I personally thought that he was going to be all one thing or the other, that it would be very clear that he was, that it's over, it's done you know, he's, he's got it. He's got 80 plus, you know, points or something like that. But, you know, as the likes of Karl Rove are likely to point out, you know, he actually has pretty consistently been hovering around, you know, 45 points ahead of people, you know, and that's, is that a big lead? Yes, absolutely. It is. And it's mean something, but it also means that there's a bit of a bit more shooting range than perhaps uh, one might've thought for a former president who is effectively running as an incumbent. Uh, number three, I think that when it comes to the Democrats, the the hope that they had of removing Joe Biden uh, a year ago uh, in the in the you know run up to the uh, the midterms uh, when there were all these different things you know there were articles leaked out in Politico and in the Washington Post and in Axios and elsewhere that were just kind of you know preparing the ground for the idea that if there was a red wave they really would need to get rid of Biden. That wave never came uh, or it was essentially, you know, fell apart thanks to the weakness of the candidates involved. Uh, and now a year later, uh, his grip on the nomination on the Democratic side seems complete uh, to the degree that he's even, you know, even with someone else getting in the race, Dean Phillips uh, from Minnesota, uh, you know, peace be upon him, uh, is uh, is running, you know, essentially a campaign that was immediately excoriated. Uh, he's already been called a racist for the fact that he was going to register and to run in North, North uh, in uh, uh, in New Hampshire and not in uh, South Carolina. Uh, and, you know, that's the kind of thing that I think just speaks to Joe Biden's firm grip uh, on the Democratic uh, side of things. And the, the fact that he's going into this race with Kamala still at his side uh, without even changing that shows the degree to which uh, the Democrats are basically Democrat leader, leadership is counting on. Uh, the anti-Trump vote to bring all these different soft, independent leaners back home uh, once that once that uh, campaign is set. Now, there are two other things that I think uh, kind of are are side issues that I want to run by you both. But just as a, an assessment of kind of this top three narratives, uh, is there is there anything there that I missed? John, you want to go first? I, I think the the other thing that's sort of worth throwing into mix. Uh, and, and I feel like we we keep coming back to his stuff, or at least I do every week. But I think you know Nate Cohen at the New York Times does a good job as sort of the new polling. I, I think that we're also, you know, the as, as, as realignment happens between the parties, you know, the 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 voting mix, right? It used to be, you know, when we were starting out in politics, Republicans could count on, um, you know, their voters turning out more, you know, because you're talking about essentially kind of a, a middle class grounded party. Um, and, you know, basically whatever election it was, votes for dog catcher people would show up 
Uh, now, right, it's the Republican Party as it's become more blue collar. Yeah, they show up every four years for president, but you know, midterms maybe, maybe not. And it, what you know, some polling was that you know the Nate Cohn was going through was you know effectively that uh, among basically you know people that didn't vote uh, last time uh, or you know recently, uh, Trump actually leads among them. So depending on you know what that turnout model looks like. You get more of these disengaged voters out. Uh, it helps Trump or historically, you know, it, it was, was the inverse, but yeah, I think you've uh, kind of outlined the the general state of play where we are a year out uh, you know, really well. And you know, look, I, I just, you know, you look at, you look at, there was a poll that was, I think, you know, caught some attention the other day. It was uh, <clears throat> NBC news, the Moines register poll. I, I think that's, an, you know, I, I believe that's the end seltzer. Uh, yes. who's sort of the, you know, considered the gold standard of, of Iowa pollsters that, you know, it's got Trump at 43 and then, you know, combined, you know, DeSantis, Haley and Tim Scott are at, let's see, 32 and seven, carry the one, uh, you know, they're, they're at 39, right? So it seems like, oh, you know, some consolidated not Trump um, would have a shot there, except if you look at it, probably the second choice for you know, a decent number of those, the second choice for some of the DeSantis people is going to be Trump. Mm-hmm. The second choice people for some of the Haley people is going to be Trump. I mean, I don't, I don't know if we can quite coronate him yet, but man, it's, it's gotta be getting close. Yeah. Um, yeah. Dan, Dan, I, before you, before you weigh in one element of this, <laughs> there's, there are two elements I want to throw in, which is one is uh, the, the near certainty uh, that uh, metaphysical certainty, as as uh, as uh, the late John McLaughlin would say, uh, that there is going to be at least one major name third party challenger in this race. Um, we saw this poll come out uh, from uh, from Quinnipiac uh, this uh, this past week, uh, which showed that if if RFK is one of the options, it shows him with twenty two percent support in a hypothetical three way where Biden gets 39 and Trump gets 36. Now, we all know the caveat that those numbers go down the closer that you get to an election. I certainly expect them to go down. I certainly don't expect RFK to be able to make every ballot. Uh, And yet, and yet, I just think that if there is someone with a name who, you know, is a third party candidate in this race, it jumbles a lot of the assessments that we normally make about the way that partisans will behave um, and the way that those uh, voters will will turn out in in geographic areas where they are needed, meaning that you know the, the damage that could be done in particular, you know, in a in a number of swing states uh, could be outsized, you know, in in even with high single digits uh, for a third party candidate, just given the nature of the electoral map that we've been working with. What are your thoughts? I think that's right. I will just point out at the top that you use the phrase hypothetical three-way to describe <laughs> those three guys. And, and that's the worst. That's by far the worst hypothetical I, three-way. I've heard. I, 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 perhaps I should should have said something more like a uh, uh, hypothetical human centipede. <laughs> <laughs> Good Lord. Well, no. So, so the, the third party thing, I, I do think, you know, Ross Perot, my view is, and I actually don't, I haven't studied this empirically, but, my view was always that Ross Perot cost George George Bush re-election. So I think certainly a serious third party candidate can change the dynamics of a race. The polling that there has been, I mean, I've talked on this podcast before about how I didn't really have a firm sense of how 
uh, Kennedy would take votes uh, from Trump and, and Biden, respectively. But the polling that's been done so far, you know, suggests that it's a slight it's either break even or it's a slight benefit to Biden. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, you know, that is plausible. It, it makes sense to me. I, I think, you know, again, as his numbers go down, uh, as it gets closer to Election Day, that's probably not going to hurt Biden um, on the on the on the state of the race. Um, I'll just add two things, I guess. One one is that, you know, I think Dan McLaughlin had a good breakdown of, of what John was talking about with the second choices and things like that. And 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 McLaughlin really points out that, you know, we're setting ourselves up for another kind of tra- version of the 2016 tragedy of the commons or, you know, coordination problem that led to Trump winning in 2016, the nomination, which is that the donors are coalescing very, very quickly. We just saw that, you know, Ben, you sent around that item on Adelson um, mm-hmm. uh, meeting with with Haley and, and the big donors are coalescing very quickly around Haley, who, you know, as I've said from the start, is kind of a donor creation. I, you know, I think more more so than you guys. I think she's kind of a donor creation. Um, not to say that I, I don't I think she would be a bad president or anything like that. But I but I think she's sort of tailor made to appeal to the donor class and in fact is. And not that she's as appealing to the donor class as she is unappealing to the Elks Club. (laughs) Yeah, well, perhaps. Yes. And and so so the question that so anyway, so McLaughlin's point is, you know, if you look at second choices and you look at what would actually happen if DeSantis dropped out of the race, you know, we've been talking about this in the context a lot. We talked about this months ago in the context of South Carolina, when it looked like Scott might be more of a player than he turned out to be or has so far. Right. And we've been talking about how it doesn't really benefit the other candidates in the race to knock out DeSantis because he's pulling most of his votes from Trump. And so that, that, you know, that dynamic is very live, very consequential. And as McLaughlin points out, you know, DeSantis does better head to head with Trump than Haley does because he takes more voters from Trump than Haley currently is. And so we've got, you know, this tragedy set up, this, this, this potential train wreck set up where all the pressure is going to be on DeSantis to pull out, or, or at least all the, momentum is going to be with Haley um, and a lot of the money. And yet she's in a worse position to take on Trump than DeSantis still is. Now that could change as his support continues to erode. All sorts of things could happen if the boot, the boot stuff really, really, really bites them, you know? So, you know, things could still change, but that's a, a huge, a huge problem. And, you know, I don't want to sound fanciful or West wingy here, you know, or Bill Crystally, because it's the last thing I want to sound like, but you know, if if those two really cared about stopping a Trump nomination, then the rational thing for them to do would be for Haley to drop out and endorse Ron DeSantis and 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 act as and serve as his vice president as ticket mate. And you signal that to the public. That's like, you know, I know it's West Wingy, but that's the best, most rational plan based on where the money is and where the numbers are right now. And then the second thing I'll say, just because you, you also talked about Biden and everything that's going on over there. Um and I, I'm kind of surprised to hear myself say this, but it, it occurred to me as you were talking, Ben and, and John, too, is that, you know, you could argue that the Republican electorate right now, primary electorate, or electorate has more of a rational grasp on the the strengths and weaknesses of their candidates than the Democratic Democrat uh, elect primary electorate does, because. You know, Trump is a pre- is a president in the minds of a lot of his core supporters. He's the sitting president, right? More or less. Uh, Biden is a sitting president. He's an incumbent, right? So you've got this battle between essentially two incumbents, right? And on the Democratic side, like you said, Ben, that the the challengers and the third party challenges are just being savaged so far by the Democratic establishment. 
And, you know, Biden is polling in the 80s or 90s, you know, depending on what you look. Um, and on the Republican side, you've got, you know, the 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 you know, the, the incumbent, the last incumbent Republican president has got this cult like following. And he, you know, on a very good day is, is polling at 60. So you could argue that, you know, the Republican electorate has a better sense of the liabilities of their candidate than the Democrats do of theirs. And and certainly Biden's liabilities are very real. What do you think about that, John? I mean, I think I think you're probably right, Dan. And, and that's a that's a good way to look at things. In fact, I think, you know, part of, well, you know, and, and maybe we can inject this into this uh, aspect of the conversation. There was this interesting two interesting factors here. Uh, there was a poll uh, from uh, that uh, I want to get the organization right. Um, an Arab American group uh, sponsored it uh, that uh, da, 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 um, uh, that came out. Reuters reported about it this past week uh, that showed that Arab American support for Biden, uh, which was at fifty nine percent in twenty twenty, uh, has uh, fell all the way to thirty five percent. Uh, and the, the lowest uh, percentage of uh, of Arab Americans uh, have are now identifying as Democrats, uh, including uh, you know the uh, a a portion where you've got thirty two percent who identify as Republicans and thirty one percent who identify as independents. Uh, they were critical, obviously, to Biden's wins in battleground election states, including, of course, uh, Michigan. Uh, but also, you know, in in Ohio and Pennsylvania, et cetera, he, they were key factors in electing uh, Democrats in these past mass midterms. Um, and you know, you've you've got you know, kind of the Democratic performance there as being a major factor for them politically. There's an AP piece that talks about how Democrats in in Michigan, in particular, are worried that uh, that he's perf- his performance on Israel uh, and on Gaza has has hurt him enough among Arab Americans in in that state. Uh, that it could really shake uh, their ability to perform. And, and you attach that also to uh, kind of a view as, as a, of a mishandling of the uh, uh, union strikes around the Detroit three automakers uh, and obviously uh, Trump's own appeal to a lot of those union voters. It's it's just interesting because it's, it's a weakness that I think uh, a lot of people didn't necessarily anticipate for Scranton Joe, but it's definitely one that I think is, is playing out in part because of you know the radical nature, frankly, of a lot of of people in that community, as it relates to Israel as an issue. Yeah, I think it's 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 I think it's too soon to tell, and I think when people are you know I, I think that it's easy to make just the sort of the 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 facile conclusion of oh because Biden, but again I think you know credit where it's due to his credit has been pretty good on on supporting Israel you know not necessarily. You know everything that I would want somebody to do, but <laughs> I think his, you know, sort of articulately, you know, uh, or articulated, you know, Israel's right to exist and to defend itself. Um, but you know, so with something like this, you know, okay, well, you know, maybe you know, American voters there don't like that. Well, maybe more people look to Trump, the guy who just talked again about putting back a Muslim ban, you know, for immigration right. to the U.S. So, uh, you know, it's. You know, whenever you squeeze a water balloon, you know, it's going to pop out somewhere else. These things are dynamic. It's just not one factor change. And you guys know this, but it's not like just one factor changes. And, you know, the, the you know, the situation kind of resets itself to this new paradigm. I mean, it's, there's, you know, second and third order effects. Uh, yeah. I and think I, that, I, I, good. 
Yeah, I, I think I, I didn't mean to cut you off, but I think, you know, I looked at the numbers and, you know, napkin math, you know, Biden won Michigan by about 160,000 votes. There's about 300,000, a little bit more than that, uh, Arab American and North African voters in Michigan. They generally broke about two to one um, for Biden. So if you just use that, you know, basis, you could you could think of a way that it would certainly get him close. It would certainly get Trump close if a lot of those voters merely stayed home and uh, and say a subset switched. And I mean, another interesting dynamic here too is two two out of three Arab Americans are actually Christians, right? So they're not you know they're 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 not Muslims. So there is a little bit. I mean, the, the Arab Christians tend to be, <laughs> frankly, as virulently anti-Israel as Arab Muslims do. So there's not much daylight there on that particular issue, but there is daylight on all kinds of other issues, one of which uh, John just mentioned, the the quote-unquote Muslim ban. Now, that was actually, you know, written as a country-specific ban, so it does encapsulate, you know, some some Arab-majority countries, And but that just gets to, again, John's point about how complex and interactive this issue is. I mean, the bottom line is that, you know, polling in Michigan, and there isn't a ton of it, but polling on 2024 in Michigan is a statistical tie right now. And, and and some polls have a Biden up, but he's up within the margin of error. And so it is a kind of thing where small issues like this could matter in that state. I mean, I kind of went into this when I when I first heard the news stories of it, thinking, ah, that's not going to matter. He's, you know, he's also shoring up his support among, you know, sort of very pro-Israel voters uh, in the Democratic base, and especially, you know, obviously Jewish voters, but but beyond just Jewish voters. Um, and so that'll more than make up for it. But you know what? The polling is close enough that little things matter. So I do think it could matter. Yeah, but I mean, you know, and I, th- I think you, you make the case for Jewish voters, but, you know, let me sort of posit another one of how many of the sort of the suburban, you know, the, the Romney 12, Hillary 16 voters, um, you know, say in Oakland County in Michigan, um, you know, that are troubled, by, you know, as I think a lot of people are by kind of the actions Hamas is and of, you know, picking President Biden was picking up kind of more of the demands of the campus left, you know, that's like, man, like, can you imagine like what would happen, you know, what would happen if, you know, Canada you know, had some terrorists, you know, some Quebec cell, you know, invaded Northern Michigan, you know, and started you know, snatching people up, you know, they'd want to bomb, you know, <laughs> so you know, it's, it's kind of a, you know, a silly point, but it's, it's the highlight. Be greeted that, as liberators. Jeff. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, it was the Albertans maybe. But, yeah, um, yes. Yeah. But you know, I think it's it's hard to 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 tease out all this stuff. It's just if it's it's just not one factor, right? And again, this is one issue, and it's not you know, don't see a world where I'm voting for Joe Biden. But again, it's to me, it's you know, incur- you know, and I probably am kind of one of more one of those suburban voters. You know, it's encouraging to to see him you know stand up for a democracy and for a U.S. ally and in, in the region, uh, those kind of things. And let's let's say that again, he did what the campus left wanted. How many Republicans are would be banging on him for weakness? For selling out an ally, for you know, can, you know, basically running the Afghanistan, you know, kind of playbook again, well, rightfully I'll, run. I'll, I'll tell you. I mean, I think that we are hitting him uh, or seeing him hit even now. I, I should say, uh, the the right is generally the way that I've framed this on my own podcast that I do for Fox, which I encourage people to subscribe to as well. Ben Dominic's podcast. Uh, you can find it on on all the all the platforms. Uh, the way that I've framed this in in my uh, monologues over there is the right has a problem with anti-Semitism. 
is almost entirely uh, condensed to a fringe portion of the media pundit online class, meaning whether it's the the you know the sort of the actual white supremacists of the world or the people who just sort of pussyfoot around that issue with them, you know the the most prominent person who says stuff like you know hey you know these uh, these people marching in London they maybe have a point about you know uh uh you know uh, false media narratives driven by the government designed to take us to war the most prominent person saying stuff like that is like Candace Owens okay and and you know no offense to the people who love Candace Owens but. Candace Owens, not that big of a deal. Like just uh, she's she's, you know, out there and and saying stuff online, just not that big of a deal. Flip side of that is that when the left has a problem with anti-Semitism, it is shot through not just some of their most prominent politicians, including ones with huge megaphones, uh, you know, as uh, and an inability to punish them for for saying things that are outright anti-Semitic, outright anti-Semitism. But it's also their institutions it's these higher ed institutions that have enormous funding. You know, it's it's the statement that you see from the, you know, heads of Columbia and stuff like that. You know, a, a campus where, you know, half the buildings are named after the Jewish people who've given them money over the years. And it's just the kind of thing where the, the, the massive institutions of the left have a huge role to, that they have played within this that is outsized and is deeply, from my perspective, evil. Um, but at the very least has been totally naive uh, about the danger yeah. of what they were allowing to fester with this decolonization narrative and everything else. So I just think it's like, it's not even close. One of these sides has a speck, the other has a log in their eye. And it's, it's just, <laughs> you know, it is, yeah. it's, it's now, and politically, how does that play out a year from now? I'm not sure, but I don't think that it's going to be something that is, useful for joe biden to talk about i think it's going to be something that is much more likely to become a cudgel in the hands of of you know trump certainly but you know i think republicans generally are going to use it to you know force bigger and bigger divides and uh and i think that that's something that is is just you know inevitable um given given the nature of things especially especially by the way with a speaker who's you know the closest thing to you know again he's a member of the israel caucus <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. as we've said before. So anyway, uh, Dan, go well, ahead. I think so. So I think the last point you made about the the asymmetry on left and right in this is is, is basically correct. I, I would just say that I think anti-Semitism is a uniquely pervasive mental uh, or sort of intellectual disease. And I include you don't have to be an intellectual to succumb to it. Lord knows you can be pretty stupid, like the poster t average poster terror downer is pretty stupid. Um, but it's it is it is kind of the original um, cognitive uh, or philosophical disease of the world. It's it's as old as civilization, and it and 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 it's pervasive. It's it's Kennedy voters, it's Biden voters, it's it's uh, Trump voters. But I agree with you basically that certainly right now, because of the dynamic that you described, it's a much bigger problem on the left because it's sewn into their elite production machine like the parts of their institutions that produce elites and future leaders of the world are you know inculcated with this stuff and so directionally it's a huge 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 problem um because those people it's like the people who are talking about like you know we've reached post-woke i know this is like a field of what what we're talking about but the, for the same reason that i don't agree with those guys i i i think that anti-semitism is going to be a, a bigger problem on the left because 
the people who've been inculcated this way for the last 30 years are just now, as you know, the boomers clinging bitterly to power, are just now the the new you know Gen X and millennial and and, and Zoomers who are coming out of those elite production you know facilities, the the IVs and all that, all the other institutions are just now taking power. They're just now coming into positions of prominence. They're just now becoming managers, vice presidents, congressmen, you know, you know, members of these um, elite institutions, these governing institutions and uh, that shape American society. And so directionally, it's going to get much, much worse. And now to circle that back to, you know, electoral politics, that that is going to, I think, hasten and already is a serious reconsideration among a, a segment of voters and again, it's not just Jewish voters and it's not just, you know, evangelicals who are very pro, pro-Zionist. It's it's a lot of just decent human beings and suburban normies who see what happened here and the way that both elites and the media ha- have covered w- what's happened and the incentive structure that guys like Joe Biden have to, to play both sides of the issue. Um, they're seeing it and they're horrified. And I think that will contribute to the ongoing realignment in, in not wholly predictable ways, but in ways that make the woke part of the progressive movement's stranglehold on the Democratic Party more tenuous just at the moment that it's succeeding. I, I don't know it would be more tenuous. I mean, I think that they're the, – the question I, – I think we're in a, in a politics right now to sort of bring it back to what we were talking about at the beginning of – it's not going to be who you vote for. It's why you're sitting out elections. Um, and I, I, I agree with a lot of you're saying, Dan, but it, it's been one of those things that you look on t- X, formerly known as Twitter, um, you know, recently. And it's, it's people who I, I generally don't agree with on stuff. And they're just horrified by, you know, the campus left and sort of their, you know, sort of spinoff affiliates. And it's, you know, and it's, you know, I don't even want to, because I mean, I think what they're horrified at is one of the, the most awful and serious things in our lifetimes. And it's like, you know, I'm not gonna be like, oh, you have to change your views on tax policy or something for me to support. I support those people, you know, that uh, the, the anti-Semitism we're seeing is gross and disgusting. And the scale of it is, is mind boggling. Um, but, you know, do those do people uh, that sort of have these reaction to it, do they just start sitting things out. And I do, I think you're right that you start seeing antibodies in, in the system. Um, you know, a, a number of major prominent law firms have just sent a letter uh, to, you know, law school deans basically saying, hey, we, you need to get your house in order. You know, we only are hiring people that are be able to work in a professional environment that's going to be respectful of people. I mean, you know, they they make the nod toward you know Islamophobia and other forms of bigotry, but it is it is a letter about anti-Semitism and how that that's just not going to fly with those law firms. And to me, that seems you know talking to some of our our lawyer buddies, you know, this seems like that is a a massive shot across the bow. So yes, I think there are going to be you know fractures you know within the Democratic Party, but to to bring you know is Donald Trump the guy that can convert on that? You know, can he take advantage of that? Can he build a bigger tent? And I. I to me, he's running kind of Harry Reid campaigns or Mitch McConnell campaigns of your, you know, his path of victory is just to grind the other guy down to dust. And it's not to build a bigger and broader and you know more inclusive party, um, you know, because I, I think that he just the uh, Trump himself just turns off so many people. Um, I mean, and it's, and it's wild too. just sort of one last point on it, right, that 
I mean, if, if it as it appears now that you know RFK Jr. ends up being kind of this sort of third party figure, um, I think it's one where, and I'm curious what you guys think. Six six months ago, you know, we would have expected some sort of Joe Manchin type, right? This kind of like moderate problem solver. Like Republicans are like, ah, he seems okay on a few issues. Democrats are like, ah, he votes for our judges. Uh, instead, we're gonna get a guy that's just sort of like the Gonzo version of like the most like wild elements of both party are like, oh, this guy's like even crazier than my guy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, th- fantastic, right? You know, it looks like the system has like, you know, the the, the paradigm of the last few years is like doubling down on itself instead of course. The ideal, the, I just, just describe him as the ideal Joe Rogan podcast guest. Like he's just, that's what yeah. he, that's what he's best at. <laughs> yeah. He's um, the most entertaining. He's the only, he's the only guy who could, who could fight Trump for entertainment value. So, um, I, I want to ask about one more thing uh, before we get away. Um, and no, it's not uh, Shoegate, um, where uh, Politico still, for some reason, thinks that it's okay running this uh, a completely whackable uh, uh, partisan Democrat uh, shoe guy on, on his research on cowboy boots, uh, which are not a thing that he wears, uh, and under a pseudonym, which they don't announce. Uh, but anyway... Uh, it's it's about this Josh Hawley Citizens United thing. Uh, I just want your opinion as to what's actually going on here. And just for the listeners to benefit, uh, essentially Josh Hawley's uh, populist anti-corporate rhetoric is now available in bill form uh, because he's introduced uh, a piece of legislation that would end unlimited corporate donations to PACs, which is obviously a major factor uh, coming out of the Citizens United decision and his argument of course for this is that there's woke corporate money in politics coming from major league baseball you know coming from uh coca-cola coming from the nba all these other things etc etc and using them as as kind of a an easy hit the thing that i think is interesting about this is that i think in sort of a 4d chess way this is kind of an acknowledgement that like that corporate money is something that is going to be largely in the past uh, and that small dollar and and like uh, big networks of individual people is going to be the way of the future. And so because of that, you might as well stake out some kind of ideological perspective that is consistent with that and consistent with your general Teddy Roosevelt big corporations, bad kind of, of uh, framing of your own approach to politics. I'm curious what you think about, about this move, which obviously went over like a lead balloon in the Republican conference. Uh, but, you know, it, it's certainly something that I think is, uh, is getting discussed a bit on Capitol Hill. Yeah. And I'll let John get the last word because he knows more about this stuff than I do, but I'll just say one thing, which is, I think that's exactly right. Ben, you and I were talking offline about this the other day. I think that, Hawley, you know, realizes before, you know, Dick Durbin and Sheldon Whitehouse and those types where things are headed. And so it makes sense that he would. And notice he also excludes nonprofits from yeah. if I understand. Right. So he excludes nonprofits. So he, he understands exactly where his bread is buttered and understands it before the Democrats. And there's a lot of stuff like this happening. It's the way the way we used to talk about how when the Republican and the Democratic Party started to shift after the 60s, you had people in the deep, deep South and people in the extreme North. It was basically Louisiana and Maine, right? You can't get more, you know, deep South or New England than that, who were the last to cling to the old category. So you got the Maine ladies and you got, you know, the Zell Millers of the world. 
and a lot of very conservative Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama Democrats. So something similar is happening now. And, you know, guys like Hawley, who I have no no book for and, and do not think much of, but he is shrewd on this point, I think, and he understands where things are going. And, and it's funny to see guys like Durbin and Whitehouse who don't get it. I mean, or maybe they do get it and they're just cynical or idiots or whatever, because, you know, these guys, especially Whitehouse, who I think is the top two dumbest people in the Senate, makes a lot of um, hay about dark money when, of course, Democrats benefit more from dark money. Right. I mean, it's been that way for a couple of cycles now, and it's only going to get uh, more that way. Um, and so there's a lot of stuff like that. And I, and we were talking about Matt Iglesias, you know, made this point, uh, the other day on, on Twitter that, you know, it's Democrats are uncomfortable and not philosophically haven't wrapped their hands around the fact that low turnout now benefits them. It's what John was talking about with the, the midterm electorate versus the presidential electorate, at least as long as Trump and Trump like figures are the face of the Republican party that is going to. Uh, have big benefits for low propensity voters and voters who only show up in presidentials and Democrats aren't used to that. And they're used to, you know, thinking of turnout as their friend, Um, but it isn't. So we're in this weird interregnum where the Democrats haven't full, you know, not, not everybody on both sides have fully realized where their incentives are. And I presume there's some principle involved, at least among some of these politicians in advocating for one side of the, of the Citizens United issue or the other, but I think a lot of it is just that. So I, I think when you look at, at what Holly is doing right now, you need to unpack his own particular circumstances. And, you know, I, I think there's probably a little bit of cynicism at play here too, that, you know, given sort of the reputation that, that Holly walked out of January 6th with, that's not the kind of guy that, you know, corporate PAC money is going to flow to. So this has kind of got, you know, sort of the, you know, the anti-McCarthy kind of, you know, martyr me vibe from, you know, that, uh, that, you know, that gang of eight of like, I'll strip us from our committees, but, you know, Jordan needs to be the guy. There's like a little bit of a vibe of that on this. Um, the reporting on this has been incredible because, I mean, this is, you know, as COVID is to Ron DeSantis as being just basically the middle of his strike zone, campaign finance stuff is to Mitch McConnell. And it's like, you know, you basically, and I'm sure Holly is happy to pick fights with McConnell, but this is basically an area where, McConnell, I think, has largely been correct over over the years. Uh, and it's certainly one where he knows it better than pretty much anybody else does. Um, you know, one of the people that has, has benefited from this corporate money over the time um, among, you know, a bunch of Republican senators is, uh, you know, Josh Hawley to the tune of $20 million when he was running against Claire McCaskill when he, I think, as far as reelect was, you know, or, you know McCaskill's reelect fund versus, you know, Hawley running. Was something like you know two and a half to one or three to one money advantage that you know, then Senator McCaskill had over him, and Senate Leadership Fund, which is you know sort of McConnell's external vehicle, helped you know, close a lot of that gap. Um, I, I also don't think that you know, and again going back to like the you know whether it's popular and whether it's salient, I think that this is like a zero percent salience issue. Um, I also don't not being a part of the from like the fundraising world within Republican politics, I, I still am I still have questions of how I think our guys are too interested in shooting at each other as opposed to be able to kind of hit the hate button on you know act blue and being like, oh, this Republican's so awful. Let me send five dollars to whoever. I mean, that's how you get people like Amy McGrath or you know Jamie Harrison that were running essentially unwinnable races and we're sucking up tens of millions of dollars. 
I, I don't know that Republicans, maybe with the exception of Trump, have shown that they can you know raise that kind of small dollar money. I mean, also, you know, and again, as the parties resort, I mean, and as sort of a professional class that has more money. I mean, have we gone from from sort of you know, corporate money to just sort of professional class, you know, lawyers, doctors kind of money? Um, I don't know. But look, I, I think there's probably more that you can do to kind of democratize the campaign finance system. You know, I think there's some interesting ideas. You know, I know Jay Cost, you know, has has written about this in the past and some others. Um, but like, I, I just like, like, this is like actually the biggest issue that like needs, you know, Josh Hawley, Josh Hawley, I think is a smart guy. Like, and this is like where he decides, like, you know, he needs to focus his attention at now when like the actual world is burning. Like, I don't, I don't get it. And, you know, I don't get the timing and I'm not sure if he's the guy that's gonna be able to capitalize on, you know, the small dollar, but, you know, be interesting to see how it pans out. I think that one of the things that we can just accept at this point is that, uh, you know, it's the way that money is working in politics is changing uh, and we don't necessarily know what's going to come next. Uh, But I definitely think that we are are going to enter some new stages here. And and these are people kind of setting the table for what they think these stages are going to be in the kind of post Mitch post big corporate check uh, era. Uh, Let me just let me just put one word then here, because this is something that I think people get wrong a lot. And I think even people that understand it kind of gloss over it. Corporations cannot directly contribute to Ben Dominich for Congress or Dan for Congress or or whatever. I mean, they can they can you know they can't give money to the leadership PACs for these people. That's all prohibited under federal law. It's these other outside sort of super PACs and things like that. You know, obviously, lots and lots of money spends through these, and lots and lots of money spends through it on on both sides of the aisle. But you know this this belief that you know, um, I, I just think that this criticism of, you know, whether it's corporate money or labor money or those kind of things, like on one hand, I can get it. But, you know, if if, if somebody gets a $5,000 check from some, you know, Fortune 100 company, you kind of know what their agenda is. But if they're getting a $5,000 check from like just like some dude or some lady, well, like, why are they giving $5,000? And what is, you know, their expectation of what candidate X, Y, or Z is going to stand for or do? Um, I think in some ways the corporate money is like probably like the most transparent stuff. Um, you know, those companies that employ lobbyists, they have to file lobbying reports. You can see what they're lobbying on. Um, so it's, you know, again, this seems to be sort of a, to some degree, a, you know, a solution in search of a, a problem. And again, I understand how people don't love the American campaign finance system, but I, I just feel like I need to put out there that like yeah. companies can't just give money to people's campaigns. Yeah, no, I mean, you know, we're, we're, we're very well within millionaires and billionaires territory here in terms of how this is framed. Uh, so uh, um, there's lots, lots of inaccuracy to go around uh, for Dan, for John, I'm Ben Dominic. You've been listening to another edition of Thunderdome. You can head over to the spectator.com to subscribe to all of our newsletters, to subscribe to our magazine. Uh, we have, uh, a great issue upcoming just went to bed this week uh, that uh, really looks great in print. And I encourage you all to subscribe uh, to get it. Uh, I have about 3000 word piece on uh, what happened during the uh, month of this speaker battle and everything else that uh, fell apart for Republicans during it and, and what, what it will do perhaps for 2024 and what it means for the future. Hope you will check that out. Uh, we will be back next week with more to guide you through this crazy 2024 campaign. 